It's the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. It all gets better from now on. The days get longer, we get more light. A great day. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin and Courtney Astolfi. We're going to talk about the news, but really all anybody's talking about is the weather. We have a little bit of weather in this podcast. Has Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost finally seen the error of his ways in discrediting a 10-year-old Ohio girl who had to go to Indiana for an abortion? Lisa, this was a turnabout in his interview with the Associated Press. Yeah, he held an interview with the Associated Press, a year-end wrap-up, and he basically said that he was really sorry for the pain that he caused with his comments on that 10-year-old pregnant girl having to leave Ohio for an abortion in that brief window where abortion was illegal. He said that, I realize what I said is not what people heard, and he also added that he had nothing but grief and compassion in his heart for this little girl. And this, of course, stems back to a July 11th interview that Yost had held with Fox News. And, you know, they asked him about the story. He said he hadn't heard a whisper of the story, but he did add that if she exists, quote unquote, and if this happened to her, she wouldn't have had to leave Ohio for an abortion, but we all know that she did. And she, he also based his remarks, he said at the time, it was a single source that was reporting the story. So he, you know, I guess wanted more attribution or whatever. And the alleged rapist was arrested two days after his statements. Um, and I'll stop there. Well, the, I look, I, I give him credit for doing this. It's the right thing to do because what he did was wrong. And what happened was he got caught up in that conservative Republican fervor. Yeah, they, they, mm-hmm. they, instead of waiting for the facts to come out, he jumped on it and sneered at it like a bunch of others. Um, and it's part of the problem. I mean, I keep hearing from our readers. I have a column about it this week that they really want to get back to some civil discussion. So I take it as a good sign that he is saying, yes, th- th- this was not a good thing. I feel bad about it. He should have waited for more information. We're all, we've all been guilty of this at times over the past mm-hmm. few years. And maybe in 2023, we'll have rainbows and unicorns and people will be more civil. Good sign, though, right? Do you agree? Well, but I, but I think yes. And, you know, I... You know, I voted for David Yost. I mean, you know, he's done some bad things, but he's done some great things. So, and I think that also too that when you're in an in an interview, especially with a, a pundit who's pushing you hard, you're going to say things that you probably will regret later. Yeah, I I agree. I think Dave Yost is largely a good public servant. He's a smart guy. He he panders mm-hmm. too much, and this was the extreme of pandering. And I was very disappointed. They didn't walk it back immediately. I mean, he, remember, mm-hmm. he kind of drilled down every chance he had to say, I spent, stand by what I said. I owe no apologies. And, and he was flat out wrong on this. He shouldn't have done what he did. And it's good to see him having some retrospection. I, I hope in the new year, people are less quick to jump on it, including me. It's today in Ohio. Public Square in Cleveland has not been what people envisioned, except for a short time in 2016. Since then, it's got Jersey barriers making it all ugly. Courtney, is that finally going to change? Oh, yes. Those Jersey barriers, they are coming down in the new year. We learned that officially from the city yesterday. And now you might remember hearing this earlier in the year, you know, Bib kind of came out swinging right at the beginning of him taking office. He wanted to see him down immediately, went to city council to get the money uh, for the city to pay for its portion of this project. And city council approved this money in April. 
But since then, there's been fundraising efforts, you know, among different groups around, including um, RTA and some private, you know, organizations. And and during that time, they've now managed to hit their their $3.5 million goal for this project. And that's why we're hearing the announcement now. The city contributed about $1 million, if I recall correctly, and the rest of the money has now come through. And so the first stop here is going to be the design review process. These plans to remake the square will go in front of that and the planning commission before they can move forward. But that first step is going to kick off here in January. So we should be, I'm assuming, seeing some movement this summer on the actual Jersey barriers. Now, what the goal here is, is to, you know, improve the pedestrian space in the square to there will be some tweaking of traffic patterns and bus traffic as part of the, the Jersey barrier removal. And the goal here is to, you know, better separate the road out from the park. Well, I, I have wish. a question. Oh, go ahead. Oh. Go ahead. No, uh, wasn't RTA in uh, jeopardy of losing their federal funding if they couldn't go pu- through public square? Am I misremembering yeah, that? Yeah, I, I still think that was bogus. I, I mean, th- you got to remember what was going on back when this battle went on. The, the square was redone for the, the National Republican Convention, and it was great. The, the buses were not going through the square, and Frank Jackson suggested maybe we should keep it that way. But he was running for mayor that at this time, and it became this big political issue. Like it was by by making the buses go around the square, it would take longer, and that was punishing poor people. It was a kind of a bizarre argument, but it was politics it took hold. So Jackson, who's a bit of a stubborn guy, said, "Okay, I'll put the buses back through, but that's a security thing." And he put in these ugly concrete barriers. Part of the battle was RTA went to the feds and said, "Hey." If they don't put the buses through, doesn't that risk their Euclid Corridor money? And the Fed mm-hmm. said, yes, absolutely. They, they, if they don't put the buses back. But you know the way things work. If Jackson had gone to Sherrod Brown and and Rob Portman and said, look, we're trying to make the square something special. Can you work with us and the Federal Transportation Department to, to adjust it? They would have gotten it done. I mean, there's always a way if there's the will. Jackson was then stubborn. It was like, okay, I lost that battle. I'm not going to make public square pretty, which was also dumb. And so for whatever it is, five years now, you've had this ugly situation because Cleveland would not put in its money. Justin Bibb, when he ran, said, yeah, I'll fix this, which now he has done. Yeah, and I, I think it's worth, right, Courtney. Yeah, and and I think it's worth noting as part of these plans, like bus traffic is still going to be going through Superior Avenue, which goes back to that whole Euclid corridor question, right? So, so there are still going to be two lanes for buses, and they're going to do some curb extensions out. The roadway will be narrowed, but there's still going to be room for bus traffic there. The shame of this is that I think the setup with the buses going through and car traffic going around, it's just deterred anybody from wanting to go down there. Driving down Superior now is kind of a nightmare of awkward traffic lights. And yet the square isn't this gathering place because you got buses going through it. The whole vision for that thing is kind of still in flux. Hopefully we'll get to a point where that can become the park that it was envisioned as. Well, and, and But at least the barriers are coming down, right? Yes. And they're going to be replaced with steel bollards that can retract into the ground and still address that 
that, I guess, that safety question concern of, of cars ramming into the square. So there will be bollards there. But I also think it's worth noting, I found this to be an interesting tidbit a few weeks ago when Bedrock came out with its big announcement about wanting to remake the Tower City area. The the, the CEO, Kofi Bonner, told us in an interview that as part of that project, they might like to see buses removed from Superior Avenue too. So I, I wonder if um, this is an ongoing conversation. I'm sure it will be. And Sherwin-Williams is not going to want to have an, a, a terrible square. They're building their, their headquarters on Although I read in Cranes that they're not going to own most of that building. They sold off their interest in the building, which is odd. It's today in Ohio. It's a good bet that Ohio's Secretary of State Frank LaRose will keep pushing to make it harder for voters to pass amendments to the Constitution. And despite his claims, one of his colleagues made clear this is all about impeding an abortion amendment. Laura Hancock looked at percentages of voters in other states who have decided the abortion issue to compare it to LaRose's plan. Lisa, what did she find? Yeah, it was very interesting. She looked at uh, five or six different states that had referendums on abortion and, and, you know, saw the percentage by which they passed or failed, depending on the ballot language. Um, They all passed or failed within the 52 to 59 percent range, if you don't count Vermont and California, which are super liberal. So, in Ohio's world, if we tried to do that with our 60%, you know, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have happened. So in Kansas, which would got national news because it happened so soon after the Dobbs decision, their uh, amendment would have allowed the legislature to outlaw abortion. That failed by a 59% margin. In Michigan, um, the state would regulate abortion at fetus viability at 23 to 24 weeks, but otherwise women have bodily autonomy. That passed by over 56%. Kentucky amended their constitution to say that the constitution does not protect abortion rights. That failed by 52%. And then in Vermont and uh, California, they were trying to reaffirm reproductive liberty rights passed in by almost 77% in Vermont and in California it was 67%. So if that 60% requirement for a constitutional voter amendment passes in Ohio, it you know, it may not happen. And a lot of people are saying this is a targeted blow at trying to enshrine constitutional abortion rights in Ohio. Yeah, that the, the, what's fascinating about this is when LaRose first brought this up, people said this is about abortion. And he said, no, 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 it's just coincidence. And Brent Larkin came out and called him a liar. And I heard from some people saying, you know, how can Brent Larkin call him a liar when there's no evidence it's a lie? And my answer was, if you wear a big red nose and wear size 20 sneakers, we can call you a clown if you, even if you say you're not a clown. The beauty of it is it was all revealed because in the final moments of the lame duck session, one of the legislators who was pushing this sent a note to his colleague saying, this is all about abortion. I mean, it just blew up Frank LaRose's claim that it was coincidence. They said, we got to pass this because people are going to legalize abortion with an amendment. So really good work by Laura Hancock to show how difficult it would be for the will of the people to prevail if Frank LaRose gets his sleazy proposal across. We had an op-ed that ran in our forum section today that said what we really should be doing in this state is not changing the percentage of the vote 
we could we should mess with the percentage of the registered voters who have to sign a petition to get it on the ballot. And maybe mm. that's a good idea. Maybe mm-hmm. you make that easier to change the law and a little more difficult than a constitutional amendment to to get it. I think the proposal was go from three percent of the voters to five percent of the voters. Uh, it's an interesting proposal, but good work by Laura Hancock. Check it out. It's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Mike O'Malley is expanding his efforts to solve crimes by using DNA to identify family members of possible suspects leading to the suspects. What did he announce Tuesday, Courtney? Yeah, you know, O'Malley came out yesterday and said he's looking to use a quarter of a million dollars from a fund that's, um, you know, fed by civil and criminal forfeitures. He wants to use that money to pay for this expansion of genealogical testing and and he's asking police departments around the county now to submit DNA from cases that that could be go, could, could could go through that process. And like you said, this is a little bit different than than normal DNA testing. Usually, you know, you find a suspect's DNA at the crime scene. They've been arrested before, so when you run that DNA, their name pops up from a previous case. But this deals with that issue when you know, the suspect's never been arrested before. They're not in the database, but maybe their cousin or their brother is in the database from a crime they've committed. And and you can link up and narrow down your suspect pool using the DNA that way. You know, people, people might be familiar with this process. Um, it was used to catch the Golden State Killer in 2018, killed, you know, at least 13 people, raped dozens of folks back in the 70s, 80s. And, you know, prosecutors out there, used the genealogical test to identify him. So O'Malley is, is on board with this, this new technology. Yeah, there are people who believe this is a privacy rights issue, that if I do my DNA test to check my genealogy, I'm not submitting it for use by law enforcement, that this is my private material and that their use of it in this way is an illegal search and seizure. Um, it's interesting, though, because... They are solving crimes by doing it. The smartest criminals are not leaving much of a trace, but if they have a dopey brother, they can be caught because of it. And O'Malley seems intent on really expanding the use of it. Yeah, so so he's looking for police departments around the county to go through their cases. You know, the, basically the prosecutor's office has had some success, it says, in using this testing for some cold cases. But now it's looking to police departments to submit cases that have happened in the last four years where where the DNA profile is already on file, but it hasn't matched up with anything. So O'Malley is really kind of targeting this now to current cases. We'll have to assess it in a year or two to see how many he's taking care of by going this route. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Do we have any clue as to why Metro Health is stalling on releasing public records showing how much it pays its executive staff? Some of our readers speculate it's embarrassment about paying high wages. And Lisa, I got to say, this is a question that's coming up almost every day from people. When are you going to show what the CEO, Akram Boutros, who was fired for giving himself extra secret bonuses, was paying those around him? Because they're speculating that by paying people extra money, they weren't going to turn him in for taking these bonuses. We've been waiting weeks and weeks to get this data and we just can't get it. What, what, what's behind that? 
Well, a Metro Health spokeswoman told us that uh, they're working on it, but Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer requested salary and bonus figures for Metro Health back on November 22nd, right after Akron Butchers was fired, and we haven't gotten a response. We haven't got the documents, but uh, they're allegedly coming. And so the things that we have asked for for Metro Health, uh, we're looking at performance-based variable compensation program, or the PBVC. They also were also asking asking for total compensation, salary, plus bonuses for the leadership team, total compensation and bonuses for nursing and physician leaderships teams, and also the annual goals that were set for Boutress under the Metro Health Bonus Program. Now, they did release some figures. This month, they released figures from 2021 for the top five paid employees. Boutress was at the top with $2.1 million. That's nearly two times more than the number two person who was a physician. Uh, the number two executive uh, Craig Richmond. Uh, he was number two at just under $1 million. He's the executive vice president and chief financial officer. But numbers three through five of the highest paid were actually orthopedic doctors at Metro Health. Yeah, I just don't get the delay. I, I do. Whenever we get a delay like this, there's a reason that's behind it. it when we finally got Akram Boutros's pay, it was shocking that he got $2.7 million in one of the years. Nobody saw that coming. So I, I suspect we're going to be alarmed and amazed by how much they're paying, but it's a public accountability issue. I should mention that the chief of staff under Akram Boutros, Jane Platten, resigned last night, or I guess they mm. said she's leaving by mutual consent. There mm. was a statement by the new CEO, Erica Steed, saying that they're moving forward or something. It sounded like there might have been some pressure for her to leave. But but I just I don't get it. And I, I you know, I suspect this is one of those cases where they're going to try and release this during the holidays when they mm -hmm. don't think people are paying attention. Mm -hmm. But that won't work. We'll blare this to the highest mountaintop if it's fishy. They ought to just drop it now. This isn't that hard to get. It's basic salary information. It should have been ready yeah. on day one. So, and it's been a month. It'll be a month tomorrow that we've been waiting for it. So. Yeah, I just it's it's really they're, they're if they're trying to clear up the public's worry about what's going on there. This is the wrong way to do it. They should give us those records and get it out of the way. It's today in Ohio. The Ohio Department of Transportation has a pretty detailed process for municipalities that want to change speed limits on main roads. How did Cleveland Heights get around that requirement in dropping speed limits on major roads going through that suburb? Courtney, there was a lot of interest in Cleveland Heights. I live there from people wanting to know how this could happen. And we have the answers. Yeah, it seems like the, the mayor and council came up with, I, I, it seems to me, a clever little way to, to get around this ODOT process, a legal clever little way to get around it, right? So there's, other than that usual approval process through ODOT, Cleveland Heights has found, you know, another way around that. And, and, and that's what they've done in this case. And starting today, this applies to Euclid Heights Boulevard, Noble Road, Lee Road, and North and South Taylor Roads. They're dropping from 35 to 25. And this, oh, oh go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, so the process Cleveland Heights used was was through city council. Council, at the end of November, agreed to reclassify these five roads. Um, they were currently, they were previously called through streets, but they reclassified them to non-through streets. And as our colleague Zach Smith reported, that allowed them 
to kind of do an end run around this ODOT process legally. And, and the reclassification allows those speeds to drop down. They, they, they don't have to go through the normal speed test process that ODOT would impose otherwise. So, so this was their way to kind of get around that and, and try to get to some traffic calming measures on these busier roads. Well, it's a loophole is what they've done. The state has a very specific system for, for, I think it's mainly to block cities for setting up speed traps. So you've got to do a traffic study. You've got to show it. And then if you do, you get registered on a state database of speed zones. And we have a bunch in Cuyahoga County, not in, in Cleveland Heights. But the, the idea that Euclid Heights Boulevard is not a through street, Thank just you. check it out check it out at rush hour. I mean, you mm-hmm. can't, it, it's like, it's like a highway at rush hour. Taylor road is not, to, to think of that as a neighborhood street is preposterous. So they, they kind of abuse the system here. This is a loophole. Yes, it's a loophole. You can redefine the street, but just because you say it doesn't make it. So if, if, if it's true that Euclid Heights Boulevard is not a through street, then they ought to block rush hour traffic from going through. <laughs> I, I I like this move. I think it's clever. And, and you don't have to go through the rigmarole. You know, there's this whole conversation that's been brewing for years about pedestrian safety and multimodal transportation and, and the deaths that, that car cro- crashes cause. You know, I, I don't know. It, it kind of feels but, like a, a nice loophole around the Columbus red tape to me. Except the red tape is intended to bear that out. I'm not aware. And Cleveland Heights didn't go to the public and say, we've had pedestrians get hit on these roads. We've had dangers on these roads. And I and, you know, Cleveland Heights is seen elsewhere as a speed trap. There was there was a time where anybody driving up Cedar Hill would see a police car sitting, waiting to pluck them off the road. So I'm I'm not sure. I, I question the motive behind this. I, I don't know that any of these roads are dangerous for pedestrians. I don't know if anybody has been hurt and, and the, the government hasn't shown that. Lisa, you've been snickering at this whole thing. You have thoughts on this? Well, first of all, I drive like all of those roads all of the time. Nobody's going to drive 25 on Lee Road, <laughs> despite what the sign says. And it becomes a traffic moving situation. How can you say that Lee Road is a non-through street? That's crazy. And Taylor, I, I understand Taylor, and I don't know what the current speed limit is because it's narrow and residential, and a lot of people park on the street there, you know, uh, and it only goes from Fairmont to, uh, I guess, uh, Forest Hill or whatever. But yeah, I, whatever. You know, the, the mayor, Khalil Sarin, <laughs> said that, that he's, this was a reaction to the community concerned about the speeding through there. So take that for what what it's worth. And and he, he, he told us that you know, this is not intended to be a speed trap. Um, so take that for what it's worth. For the mayor. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm on nextdoor.com, as is Lisa for that region. And I could tell you there are people in Nextdoor saying, yes, we need to calm traffic. There are a whole lot of people that don't buy this and are, are kind of upset about how it was foisted upon them without discussion. I do have to say that any issue in Cleveland Heights leads to lots of nitpicking and debate. So <laughs> I'm not sure that next door is the best read on what's going on. It's today in Ohio. 
Speed limits don't matter much if you don't have officers to enforce them. How has a state trooper shortage affected the number of tickets and drunken driving arrests, particularly in Cuyahoga County? Lisa, I saw a big sign near the Ohio Turnpike the other day that they were having a state trooper hiring fair. So Mm. it's clear they need more officers. They absolutely do. And uh, DPS spokesman uh, Lieutenant Nathan Dennis says they're short 250 troopers right now, and they can't even hire and train them fast enough to keep up with the pace of retirements. Their current uh, uh, person power is 1,333 officers and 890 support staff currently. So when they looked at uh, traffic tickets that were written this year through December 11th, they are down 11% statewide compared to last year. So um, there were 427,700 people cited last year, but through December of this year, 46,194 fewer tickets were written across the state. Also, if you look at drunken drivers, uh, fewer drunken drivers were pulled over uh, you know, during this year, down 20% statewide to about 14,450 people arrested. In Cuyahoga County, drunken driving arrests are down 52%. They went from 717 arrests last year to only 343 this year so far. Also, tickets written for seatbelt violations are down by one-third. But Lieutenant Dennis says there is a bright spot through December 4th of this year. Traffic deaths are down by 91 compared to last year. So that's good news. But he also points out that 2021 had the highest fatality since 2002. So... I, I do feel like anytime you're driving on a Friday or Saturday night, you're surrounded by drunken drivers. The number of people weaving and and such, and the fact that that's not being enforced probably is just going to make that worse. Uh, I had no idea they were down that many officers. Those are generally seen as pretty good jobs for police. Yeah, and they even, you know, changed their recruitment because they weren't allowing people with, you know, visible tattoos. And, you know, they had to wear short sleeves during the summer, but then they changed that and said you can wear long sleeves year round just so they could get tattooed people, you know, to, you know, come aboard. Okay. It's today in Ohio. We were worried earlier this year about how Ohio officials might reduce the quality of service if they took over the much-beloved lodge at Geneva on the Lake. But now, Ashtabula County is going to keep it. Courtney, what happened? Yeah, what a what a uh, turn of events on this one. This is a very interesting outcome. <clears throat> like you said, there's been this back and forth about who would own it, and Ashtabula County is going to hang on to it. Meanwhile, the state's going to pay off the county's debt to build the lodge. So it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, but a win-win for Ashtabula County here. Um, you know, the lodge said, yeah, the, oh, go ahead. Yeah, what was odd is that there was a county official who hated this and didn't like the debt and got into the state legislature and put together a bill for the, the state to take it over. Was just dead set on not having it be on the Ashtabula County books. But in the lame duck session, I guess that resistance faded away. Yeah. State Senator Sandra O'Brien had thrown this proposal out there in in mid-2021, and it would have the state retain ownership and then pay off the debt, thereby getting the debt off the county's books. But that proposal was kind of separated out, and, and, and we got the result we did. You know, the lodge sits on 
state land, but county taxpayers were the ones who built it in 2004. The state said it couldn't afford it at the time. It's been a big success. And the, the debate here was that you can either stick with the contractor the county has tapped to run it, which has resi- resulted in higher occupancy rates, higher overnight room costs than lodges at, at other state parks around the state. And and they kind of pointed to state operators of state-run lodges and, and just thought that the county contractor was the better choice here. So it looks like it's going to be sticking with the county's contractor, Delaware North, and that that debt is now freed up. Yeah, it's a good outcome because it'll maintain the high level of service. The state contracts for all its parks. And so the blanket way they approach it would have, would have applied there. Interesting. A lot of stuff happened in the lame duck session. We're still trying to catch up with it all. And this was one of them. It's today in Ohio. Well, let's talk about the weather. Cause like I said, it's what everybody's talking about. And with what looks to be a big bitter storm that has us all wondering what the highways will be like. The Ohio Turnpike tells us not only have the plows they need to clear the snow, they have names for them. Lisa, how did they come up with those names? This is so cute, but I do want to ask a question. Do you guys name your vehicles? No. (laughs) No. You don't? Oh my God. Every one of my vehicles had a name. I drive Eva right now, my cross track, but oh my God. Anyone who doesn't name. No. Who doesn't name their vehicles? That's a heathen thing. Come on. (laughs) How how does it come up in a sentence? Well, when I talk about my car, I call her Eva. (laughs) Okay. So anyway. I did not know that that's a thing. Oh, okay. No, gosh. But anyway, I think this is wonderful. The Ohio Turnpike had a Name the Plow contest in October and November. They got 5,500 entries, and then they picked the 50 top ones to put to a public vote in, in, in late November. They got over 1,100 votes cast. They picked eight names, and all the winners got a $100 gift card. My favorite is Cleopatra. That's a great name. There is also the Big Laplowski. You're killing me, squalls. Control salt delete. Blizzard wizard. Plow chicka plow wow. Ohio thaw enforcement and Blizzard of Oz. Yeah, it 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 was cute, and it's a good way of reminding people that the plows are out and about, and you should get out of their way. One, there was a quote in the story. It says the safest place to be is behind, behind one of these it. big plows. Yeah, and, and there's I, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, and they did have some tips, you know, they said, avoid passing a snowplow, although I don't know why you'd want to do that. And they say, always allow extra space on either side of a plow or even if you're behind them. Yeah. And the turnpike, I traveled a lot. They really do a good job of keeping that clear. There's at least always one lane that feels completely safe. It's not like some of the other highways. They've had a long history of of making it safe for travel. Of course, when you get off the turnpike to get wherever you're going, you're at the mercy of, of <laughs> other plow operators who probably don't name their plows and maybe they should. It's today in Ohio. That's it. We got one more podcast episode before the holiday weekend. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks for listening. Come back Thursday and we'll wrap up this week of news.